The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That may surprise you. You may say, well, wait a minute. Why aren't you preaching about the institution of the Lord's Supper from the Gospels or a scene leading to the cross? My thinking on this was, if you've been with us, if you're not a visitor, you know we've been in very detailed way going through John's Gospel And we have had a very strong focus on the cross for many weeks now, leading right up to and through the death of Jesus through chapter 19. And I felt that since we had considered those things so closely on Sunday mornings, I would turn the spotlight more on the Lord's table tonight. One of the reasons I'm doing that also is because of a question that a young person asked me. I love it when young people ask me questions. Last, last Sunday was a record. I had three elementary-age children asking me very interesting and incisive questions after church. But this was a middle school student who not long ago asked me and said, Pastor, can you help me understand how I'm supposed to pray at the beginning of the Lord's Supper? What should I be praying about? And we had a good conversation about that, but I thought it's a question that I know others probably have. And this would seem to me to be a good time for us to consider our own practice of the Lord's Supper on this of all nights. So I read Paul's instruction about this, and I'm actually backing up a little bit from where it was indicated in the bulletin. Uh, Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11 is where I begin to read. Paul writes to these Corinthians, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Father, on this of all nights, when we think of this supper's institution from the Passover meal to something new by our Lord himself, focus our minds and our thoughts to reverence this gift that you've given us at the table, to consider in our minds our proper way to approach it. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. You certainly know that at crucial points in life, we all, at some time or other, submit to examinations or tests. The SAT test, I know, is given to high school students sometime in the spring. I'm not exactly sure when. But that's a much-dreaded test, of course, for college entrance. There are many other kinds of tests that people must pass. If you're a nurse, there are board exams, I believe, to become an RN. If you're a physician, you know that you have very rigorous examinations to be licensed to practice medicine, to be ordained to the ministry. And our denomination is no small thing. It involves a, a very, very stiff set of tests by peers. And I'm sure that those who take these tests would love it if it were possible somehow, if all such tests were self-administered. Wouldn't that be great? You could just say, why, sure, I'm ready to be a pharmacist. I know everything a pharmacist has to know. Sure, I'm ready to be ordained. I've digested all the courses at seminary. Take my word for it. I know what I need to know. Well, it's not that way, as we realize. And there are other peers who have gone before and are more experienced to set exams for us. But surprisingly, there's an area in Christian life where self-examination does play a major qualifying role. And according to this classic New Testament text in 1 Corinthians 11, that place is none other than the table of the Lord as we come for communion in the name of Christ. Self-examination is urged upon us. Let a man examine himself. The implication is in saying a man, that it is a mature person, someone with ability for self-analysis, which a child does not have in themselves. And it says, unless lest that person be unworthy of participation in communion. I must admit, I certainly had my share of questions as a young person when I first was coming to communion. I think I worked through the list of every possible sin or infraction against God or anyone I could think of, hoping that I didn't leave out something major. And I wonder if you don't do somewhat the same when you are preparing to come to communion. I want to ask about this tonight and maybe give you some things that are practical to help you. A British pastor named Michael Green wrote about the Lord's Supper, and I, I love the way he states it. He said, the Lord's Supper looks back to Christ's death. It looks inward to expose sin. It looks around at our fellowship, and it looks forward to Christ's great return. There's a first thing, though, that is not directly mentioned but is implied in this text of ours, but that would come before 
self-examination. And that is the initial examination of anyone to see if they do belong to Christ. Because certainly the implication is given that the Lord's table is the Lord's, and it's for the Lord's people. It's not for the general public. It's not for those who are ignorant or faithless or unrepentant. It's for Christian believers and no others. There were arguments at different times in church history over whether the Lord's table was what some called a converting ordinance. In other words, they said it should be generally available to all because perhaps by experiencing it, it would draw people into conversion and they would be saved in the act of going through this. But the general belief has not been that. The way the church has generally interpreted the Lord's Supper is it is for those who already have confessed Christ and called him Savior and Lord in some way. Otherwise, they might be people coming in total ignorance. They might be people who even regard the table of the Lord as some kind of mystical hocus-pocus, uh, something to, you know, kind of a little bit like dabbing holy water on you or something that's going to give you a, a blessing and help you along your way. Well, we certainly don't see it that way at all. In fact, those who do not know Christ should not partake of this until they would be of a understanding faith. Paul even implies here that abuse of the table and verse uh, 30, he says, have caused some to be weak and ill and even maybe have died in the judgment of God by that kind of thing. I think you may know that while we don't always use the exact same words every time we observe the Lord's table, I do something that our denomination sort of strictly wants us to do and I think is good to do. And that is a statement of some sort of who the table is for and who it is not for. Warning that any who haven't professed Christ should not partake. And there are, if you don't realize, and you wouldn't realize, that there usually are perhaps one or two in a congregation our size who are under some degree of discipline and have, have been asked to not partake for a time while they consider and repent for something in their life that the elders have dealt with with them. And we don't emblazon such people with a sign. You don't know who they are. If they're here among us, they know. And that is the important thing. But we call that introduction to who should be receiving fencing the table. Maybe that's an obvious title for it. I hope it isn't uh, too uh, shabby a comparison. If I compare it to the wires that some of you have buried in your front yards or backyards to contain a dog in your property, an invisible fence that gives that dog a bit of a jolt. I hope not too much of a jolt. Our dog would probably run right through it, I think, but uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about, to contain the dog without a solid barrier. Well, we put up what we would think of as a non-electrical version at the table of Christ. We don't want to shock anybody or harm anybody, but we want to say who this table's for. And having said that, we can't physically prevent someone from partaking of the elements as they come past, but we can put a warning so that it's on their head if they are partaking when they should not be. The Lord's table 
is meant to bolster and renew and refresh the saving grace of Christ that one already possesses. It is not an occasion to bestow grace that one has not yet obtained for the first time. So I mentioned Romans 10, 9, and 10, a familiar passage that says, If you shall confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I think that verse, those two verses jolt people sometimes, especially in America when we are so sold out to individualism and individual decisions. And we say, well, it's between me and God what I would do at the table of Christ. And this is an individual decision, many would say. But I think Romans 10.9 disagrees. It says you should confess him with your mouth. There's a certain public matter involved of testifying to Christ as your Lord so that you join yourself with those other people who regard him in that same way. Public confession or profession has been an essential in the church of Jesus Christ through all the centuries as a prerequisite to coming to the Lord's table. Last Sunday, we considered a scene from before the time that uh, the, the church itself was fully established. Right after the death of Jesus, we considered Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who had been secret disciples for fear of the Jewish leadership we read. Here they were. They were disciples, but they had not professed Christ in any open way. Thanks be to God, they stepped forward at a crucial time in their service, their offering of a generous offering of a tomb and of spices and so on, was very critical as a benefit to Christ. But we don't see them as a positive example in the sense that they were closet Christians. The remainder of the New Testament does not recognize or honor closet Christians. Today we talk about people coming out of the closet to admit to dishonorable things. You need to come out of your closet for an honorable reason, to acknowledge Christ before fellow believers. And for all the centuries, no matter what denomination of the church you're talking about, there have been those leaders, hopefully mature Christian leaders, elders, deacons, depending on denominational uh, uh, programs that are different, bishops in some cases, those who hear the testimony of God's people and judge, hopefully with a mature judgment, that this one is truly and sincerely saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And therefore, they are welcome in the fellowship and welcome at the table of the Lord. So I just stress the fact that your first and fundamental examination is not self-administered. It's not simply me and God. It's bringing your testimony of Christ to join with the body of Christ, the gathered body of those who have already professed such a thing. And mature Christian leaders should be in charge of that to listen and discern whether you're in the faith. Now, this has to do with our practice, which is different than some, not all, but some, on asking our children, our young people, to wait a while before they are admitted to the table of the Lord. I say to parents who 
may say to us, well, my child is eight, and I know Janie has trusted Christ. You should hear her pray. She really knows the Lord at eight or nine or even six. And we say, you know, we respect that. We respect the fact that many of our young children have, and not simply precocious ones, but many of our children very normally can speak of testifying to Christ at an early age. But we believe that this text especially is leaning towards the phrase, let a man examine himself. And certainly we realize that the powers of self-discernment and self-examination do grow and become wiser and more discerning as a child's age increases. I like to say to people that we deliberately err on the side of caution in that. We could say, all right, anyone from four or five years old onward, come and be received at the Lord's table. And there are churches, Reformed churches even, who say, we think even little children, even babies, should have the crumb of communion or a little taste of the juice in their mouth. And they would argue for that. We think their argument is defeated by the simple phrase, let a man examine himself and so eat of this bread and drink of this cup. And if we are denying a child perhaps for a few years after they already know Christ, perhaps we're also teaching them that some things are so important that they're worth waiting for. But if you're a person who is unsure about whether you should approach church membership and profess Christ, maybe the whole thing intimidates you. I know that That is true of some people. They say, well, I don't want to meet with... Look at these guys. They look like funeral directors. You know, is is that what they look like when I have to meet with them? And it is intimidating. We don't make you meet with all 12 of them at a time. It's only a few. But they are simply men like you. And they're simply men who themselves have come through a personal struggle, a life experience that has brought them to the foot of the cross. And I think you'd find they are extremely sympathetic and supportive of those who come and bring their testimonies, no matter what age you may be. If you are one who has never testified of Christ or joined this church or any other church, let me just suggest a few questions that you might use for self-examination, considering whether you are ready to come or not. One question would be, do you desire eternal salvation and recognize that you cannot earn it yourself? Another, ask yourself, is it clear to me that Jesus was the Son of God and that his death achieved something entirely unique in all of history? Do you believe that? Do you believe that his long-ago death actually was God's appointed way of creating justifying faith in his sight? And do you accept a free gift of God's grace by putting all your trust in Christ? If you can answer those kinds of questions affirmatively, you are ready to profess your faith to the elders of the church. And I'd urge you to think about doing that prayerfully. Now, assuming you have done that, assuming I'm speaking to members of the church and those who have publicly professed him before, Secondly, I ask this larger question, how can a Christian be worthy of the Lord's table? I would say that that one bothered me for a long time. 
For this text says in verse 27 that we're not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner lest we be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Well, the question would get its needle in me and work at me and have me say, how in the world can I be worthy? And I begin to think of the idea of somehow scouring my soul. Presbyterians two and three hundred years ago used to have preparatory services before a communion time. That was when communion was only celebrated once or twice or four times a year. They would have a whole preparatory service with a strong emphasis on repentance. And if you didn't come to the preparatory service, you didn't receive a communion token, which was a little wooden disc or something like that, to show that you had come and participated in an act of public repentance, and you wouldn't be allowed then to come to the communion service. Well, we're not going to condemn that, for sure. That was certainly a very thorough way of seeking repentance in people's lives, and we probably are far too casual about it today. I don't know what you picture when you picture examining yourself. I think one, one picture that went through my mind when I was thinking about it this week is a surgeon scrubbing for surgery. And some of you medical people, doctors or nurses, know. You see it on TV, and scrubbing up and very, very thoroughly trying to clean and clean under your nails and get your hands as antiseptically clean as possible. And I wonder if that's what we think God is asking from us, that we would somehow scour ourselves and get ourselves perfectly clean and presentable. I'm not sure that that really is it, because we have to beware of the the idea that we, on our own abilities, are somehow going to completely accomplish that, and we're not. John Calvin said this, the best and only worthiness we bring to God at his table is to offer him our vileness and unworthiness so that his mercy can make us worthy. We are beggars coming to a kindly giver. Calvin continued and said, As sinners we come to the author of righteousness. As dead men and dead women we come to him who gives life. Therefore, the worthiness God commands from us consists chiefly in our faith, resting all things in Christ and nothing in ourselves. It's a kind of desperateness coming to the end of yourself and saying, Lord, I I may have repented for five days and fasted and prayed, but I'm sure there would still be many things I haven't thought of that should be confessed to you. To examine yourself means, it seems to me, to handle your sin honestly and with sincerity. Not trying to cover anything up. Not trying to name it something different. My wife and I, just in driving here tonight, had National Public Radio on in the car, and we were listening to a woman who was blaming her brother's suicide on the conditions he was put into in in prison and the confinement and the being closely, you know, interacting with other people who had very harsh and violent lives, and, and this man committed suicide. But she could see blame resting only with the prison system. It was all the prison's fault that her brother had died. Well, I'm not saying the prison certainly didn't put him in a disadvantaged position, but isn't it true that we are always looking for some way to blame things? 
and come even to the Lord and say, well, Lord, this happened in my life, but of course you know this is why it happened, and, and it was that person's fault over there, and they still haven't gotten right with me. We need to call our sin what God calls it. If it's adultery, it needs to be called that, not some other softer name that you would give it. Every Sunday night when we go home from evening service, we're in a neighborhood where the trash comes really early on Monday morning. So the trash goes out Sunday night. And I usually still have my coat and tie on when I'm going home Sunday night and I'm dragging plastic bags to the street and my recyclables and all of that and thinking of clearing out the house and getting the trash out for that week. Well, perhaps it's not a bad image to think of the Lord's table as being a time when we would at least deliberately stop and say, Lord, what trash has accumulated? What acts of pride or greed or mistrust? In what have I been arguing with you or telling you I'm not being treated well and I deserve better? Maybe there's some trash that needs to go to the curb that has accumulated in my life. David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And then he said again in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts. Now David knew that God did know his heart and did know his thought. He was praying to the all-seeing God. There was no idea that God hadn't seen something and maybe I need to nudge him so he'll take another look. I believe what he was saying was, God, as you search me and know me, let me know what you know. Inform me of where I am out of adjustment with you. I hope I wouldn't be paraphrasing too much to say David was saying something like, Lord, Strap me to your lie detector. And I know I will probably not pass the test on your lie detector, but expose to me the worst things that you know. Bring them up to my imagination and my understanding so that I will freely confess what you see and what you show me, no matter how ugly it really is. Is there some area where you really have not been trusting God? You say, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed, and God, you just aren't doing what you're supposed to do. Does that need confession? If you were to think of the Ten Commandments, which of them most sharply would accuse you today, or maybe several? What is some possible secret shame that you're hiding, even from people close to you? In what area would you say you have the greatest pride and your pride has been at work vaunting itself. All of those are things that will help expose your repentance. Now, we also notice in this text that one of the things revealed to Paul here was that these people, and he brought out, was that they were eating and drinking, verse 29, without discerning the body. It's usually pointed out that that has a twofold meaning. It certainly must mean the body of Christ upon the cross, that all our repentance centers in him and what he is and what he has done, and we must come with him very much on our mind. But at the same time, it would seem also, especially in this context, to mean the body of Christ, the gathering of believers. 
Because what were these people doing but going ahead selfishly, not even sharing? The Lord's Supper was probably rather different than the way we celebrate now, not a nice, neat little tray with crackers and little thimbles of juice, but people were actually sharing out of what they had in the name of the Lord. And some weren't sharing. Some didn't have anything. And those who did weren't paying any attention to them. We're being reminded that our relationships matter when we come to the table of the Lord. Stop and think. Who's the person in your life? Co-worker? Relative? Somebody? Maybe a family member? With whom you would have the most difficult conversation that you could be called on to have, or maybe you couldn't even have a conversation. Who's that person? And before you tell me all the things that was, were that person's fault, what was your fault? And what might you do about it? Who's the person you most openly criticize or speak about in a sarcastic or angry way? If you're married, listen up, husbands and wives. What recent wounds has your spouse received from you? And think a bit before you say none, because that probably is not the answer. And what should you do about wounds you may have inflicted? These are only samples. There could be many other questions, but I'm trying to suggest ways in which you can examine yourself as you come to the table of the Lord. Verse 31 brings us to a conclusion here as it says, If we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Maybe it's a bad comparison to make, but I don't know why I thought of this. Suppose that your act of repentance before the Lord, whether in informal prayer or at the table of the Lord, could be compared to a $20 bill. You might open your wallet or your purse tonight and take out a nice, pristine $20 bill that looks so crisp and it's got all those new up-to-date features with, you know, the little gold stamp and, and the new things they put on it. And it just is fascinating to look at. They've got so many doodads on there now. And you take this out and it's crisp. It's not bent at all. It looks like you're the first person who's ever handled it. Maybe that's what you think your act of prayer at the Lord's table is supposed to be like. Perfect, unwrinkled, all beautifully aligned and beautifully stated. But maybe in your purse or wallet you also have another $20 bill. And it's the one that's really made the rounds. It's been through washing machines about 10 times. It's all crinkled. It's torn at the edges. It's got a piece torn off one end. Don't you know that both of those $20 bills are equally negotiable currency for $20? Anywhere you would go, I believe the bill only has to have two-thirds of its material to be accepted for negotiation with a $20 purchase. And if your repentance coming to God has been through the washing machine ten times and is all ragged around the edges and torn at one end and all shabby, don't you understand that that is as worthy, maybe more so, before our Heavenly Father than some perfectly composed speech with all the right these and thous and words in proper order. God's preeminent concern is whether your 
stumbling faith rests sincerely and completely in Jesus Christ and nothing else. The question is, if you're grasping at his righteousness or relying on some particularly pious performance when you come to the communion table. I repeat that theme statement for you once more. The Lord's Supper looks back to Christ's death. It looks inward to expose sin. It looks around to see your fellowship. And it looks forward to Christ's great return. If you have no other equipment with which to talk to the Lord tonight as you come to his table, a simple, sincere song that we have used and you know very well would suffice for your introduction. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Father, as we come tonight, mindful of Christ, mindful of the solemnness of this evening and what it remembers in the past, mindful, too, of the wonderful joy that it looks forward to in our future, mindful of Christ Jesus, who is at the center of it all, would you let us unfold before you our shabby, wrinkled, torn acts of confession, Bring to mind that which we need to be reminded of. Shock us if we need to be shocked. Do not let us hide in our self-deceit. Humble us under your mighty hand. But then, Lord, give us thankfulness for the wonderful grace and mercy that you make available in the name of Jesus. We praise you through him. Amen.